Hi friends, Sharice here, and today we interview one of the co-writers of Season 6, Episode 7, Rascals. Listen in to get a hot take on the original script versus what we saw on screen, and take a trip down memory lane with one of the OGs of the science fiction industry. (laughs) Stay tuned. Welcome to the TNG Podcast, the number one place in the Alpha Quadrant to geek out about all things Star Trek The Next Generation. I'm your co-host, Sharice. Hey, I'm your co-host, Andrea, and today we are dropping a special Escape Pod episode to talk about a fan-favorite episode with a fan-favorite person, I think. (laughs) And if you don't know who she is, you're about to find out. Sharice, who's our special guest today? Today, we would love to welcome our special guest, Diana Drew Botsford, who is one of the writers for the episode Rascals. That's the one when Picard, Keiko, Guinan, and Ro all get turned into kids. But somehow, even as kids, they take over the ship from the Frangi, and it's awesome. So Diana is a writer, producer, and an instructor. Um, and her primary writing focus is on science fiction for a variety of mediums, including books, films, television, theater, and comics. She's also worked on like a bajillion shows, including Inspector Gadget, which I think is so fun. Oh my God, um, that's amazing. <laughs> I love are, that. We are honored to have her in this Escape Pod episode to talk about the process and the experience of writing this episode. Diana, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's always fun to geek out with others. Yay. It's just a big nerd pod that we're having right now. <laughs> now, are we nerds or are we geeks or are we both? You guys are both scientists. So yeah, we're yeah. doing both. I'm you doing yeah. both. The nerd badge. I'm a geek. I appreciate <laughs> okay. you guys. I didn't realize there were like levels on the nerddom hierarchy, but okay, sure. It tracks. It tracks, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> it's not the first time I've been asked that question. And I'm always like, um, both. <laughs> I don't know the distinction. So I'm going to take the badge of both. Diana, the first thing that we always do when we have a guest is we ask them what their favorite uh, Star Trek character is. Now, you have a long history with sort of all of the tracks, so I guess you don't have to keep it to TNG, uh, but who's your favorite character and why? It's Worf, unequivocally, which is TNG, but then Deep Space Nine, like, wow. I mean, you're talking about, in the entire franchise... my opinion is is that there is no other character with as deep and incredible a backstory as his. Mm-hmm. There is just this certain wounded, um, the wounded warrior, yeah, attempting to persevere. Um, I mean, you know, I, and I worked with Denise Crosby, ironically, on a pilot shortly after she left uh, Next Generation. But I honestly think. I think Tasha Yar, eh, I think her coming back as the Romulan version was much cooler. Yeah, they mm, did more fun. with her. I think it was the best thing that could have happened for Worf was being able to step out of the shadows and become a critical part. And of course, when he moved to Deep Space Nine and the hair grew long and, you know. and We love and- long hair Worf. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, also, I mean... Whenever I describe my husband to anybody, my husband also has very long hair. So my husband and a beard. My husband's like a white wharf. That's the big, you know, he's got the broad shoulder. Right. I married him because he's just like the most ethical, honorable person on the planet. And that's why Gen Z married, you know, Wharf also. So or one of the reasons. So Wharf, I just think everything that's been done for him and and in the novels too, what they've done for him. And I'm so excited 
Uh, by the time this streams, Picard will have co- come out. Yeah. Oh, not yeah. Completed yet, but it will have come out. And the pieces that I've seen, the photos, the interviews, the little snippets, it looks like they're really going to give him his due as they should. Yeah. Yeah. It feels it feels like the Frasier effect where, you know, Frasier was a character introduced at Cheers. He was a little bit insufferable, maybe a little bit more than insufferable and like kind of a, you know, one dimensional character in Cheers. And then Frasier was a spinoff and everybody was like, how's this going to work? Like, you don't have the cast of characters with the bar. You don't have the, all that. And then Frasier became far and away, like more popular and successful as a show than like its predecessor. So Mm-hmm. Which is saying a lot because Cheers had enormous Cheers was ratings. Huge. Mm-hmm. Cheers was huge. Cheers was huge. Um, it was huge, but people quote Frasier to this day. I mean, I st- Cheers anymore. I still do. I mean, I still do. Like Frasier is one of my favorite shows to go back and and watch. It's just it's still hilarious. Like the the writing is so tight that like the humor even from twenty years ago is still like so spot on. But it's the Frasier effect in DS Nine. I think where you get those TNG characters that you like or love, and then they just become these like fully fleshed out characters. So. And again, this is why Worf is so fabulous because he has two series worth of backstory mm-hmm. to play yeah. into. But giving credit where credit is due, back to TNG, you know, this is where they took somebody, a, a whole species that was a bad guy in the original, yeah, yeah, Anons, and made them into tentative allies. Maybe, yeah, yeah, exactly, allies. A lot of that credit goes to Dorothy Fontana, DC Fontana, as she was known in the original series. She was a writer on the original show, went by DC because it was the 60s. And let's not remind the people at home too much that women are working on the show, you know? Yeah. Oh, my God. How ridiculous. uh, I had the good fortune to meet her. I was working. I did. I worked in visual effects for a while. And I worked with Bob and Denny Skotek, the Academy Award winners. Uh, on Terminator 2 and Clifford and uh, Aliens and a whole bunch of stuff. And Dennis was married to DC, to Dorothy. And he arranged for a lunch so that I could meet her. Oh, my God. What an extraordinary human being. What a class act. So gracious. Here I was in my late 20s, just really trying to contain myself. because fangirling. Yeah, I mean, I was I was six years old when the original series premiered, and I was usually into science fiction already at that age. I had already read Isaac Asimov's Foundation. I was really math born as a geek, and um, you know, to to get to sit with this woman who we had very few role not women role models yeah, in the sixties, seventies, eighties. You know, and Wonder Woman just didn't do it for me. I had a problem. With that skimpy little outfit, it's just like you know ah. she couldn't save the day unless her boobs were showing. Yeah, I'm not why into that li- was like yeah, a I, trope. I don't, I don't know. I get the, I get people are into lipstick feminism. I'm personally, I'm like, eh, I think there's other ways we can make this work. But she, um, she had such a wild imagination. She had such a great imagination, and it's obvious how that translated to original series yeah what they did with the klingons in next generation Mm -hmm. was just tremendous because in season one and two they were like we're warriors we die in battle and you're like okay i feel like we've seen this a lot you know but yeah they really do kind of ripen that fruit really nicely they do but it is worth going back to watch those initial ones because that is where the yeast for the Mm -hmm. bread was sown as far as (laughs) Worf's struggles with being of 
two worlds and therefore being of none, the man without a country. Yes. He's a third culture kid. That's like, yeah. (laughs) By the way, you're speaking to a a bread baker. So I'm like, yeast, (laughs) I'm in. (laughs) I was into sourdough a year before COVID hit. I broke my wrist and like my right wrist and I couldn't do anything. I decided to pick it. I love to cook. So I decided to pick it up. And I got into it. So when COVID hit and suddenly everybody's into it, I'm just sitting back laughing. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a name for your starter, by the way? Oh, absolutely. Sally, hey. Ro- Sally Rise. After the nice. astronaut, Sally Ride. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got that. So, <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, people who make sourdough, we have to keep a sourdough starter alive. And like the longer you keep it alive the better your bread gets. So you basically like dump out half of your, it's basically just like flour and water, right? You start with a little starter and like every, like for me, every two weeks, cause I keep it in the fridge, like you dump out half and then you add, you know, you have to weigh like your flour and your water, you mix it back in. So it's got more like fuel, right? For the yeast to bubble and do its thing. So sourdough bakers usually name their starter. So I have two starters and one is Will Wheaton because it's a wheat bread. <laughs> And the other is Robert Picardo because he's the actor who plays the doctor on Voyager. (laughs) I am not someone who cooks, nor will I start after this inspiring conversation. But I do want to name something after something that I keep around because I just love this, this whole conversation. (laughs) Gotten off the rails just a little bit. We've got about 200,000 kilometers off the rails right now. (laughs) To our, to our starboard. To our starboard bow. (laughs) Port, port, yeah. I still don't know what those mean, by the way. Let's bring it back to um, to Rascals. So you co-wrote Rascals with your dad, which is really, really cool because so both cool. Andrea and I started watching Star Trek TNG with our dads. Yep. So it's like a very, you know, it, it's got a lot of warm feels. So the fact that you co-wrote an episode with your dad is like, oh, I would have loved oh, to do. I mean, I my know. dad wasn't a writer, but like just the idea of that is really, really cool. So I'd love to know kind of, how this came about where you two were writing this episode. That's my first question. And then my second question, which I know you're, you want to get into, is how did what you wrote differ from what we saw? Just a little bit. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> buckle up, everybody. <laughs> yeah. yeah, buckle up indeed. Ahead, warp factor one. Um, so we actually Support. wrote the episode back in 1981, and wow. It, and it, the original title was Maker of Dreams. It was a kind of a nod to Shakespeare's Tempest. Oh, uh, interesting. An alien character was named Calvin. Uh, and I'll get into all that in a minute. But the what spurred, besides the fact that we were bo- both, my father and I were on the phone every day going, oh, my God, next generation had another episode. Wah! You know, we both oh were crazy for it. Owned all of the novels. All of the novels. So cool. And um, my daughter was born in 1989. And um, is that right? 1989. And uh, so, yes, 1989. So, you know, here it's my, my father's first grandchild. And it was kind of an inspiration for us as well. And my daughter was really into Star Trek Next Generation as well. She Yay. Her favorite was Data until hey, the two-parter Ooh. where they find Data's head. Oh. <laughs> that was it. it. She turned her back on science fiction. <laughs> Literally, 
she was like four or five when that episode aired. Listen, that Mark Twain episode scars yet another victim. Okay, oh, okay, I didn't know this. She was so traumatized. She literally oh. just screamed, and I had to shut the TV. Oh, it is pretty scary. If you were four or five, yeah. and head. That was the inspiration for writing something about children. However, it was that plus, if you'll remember, in the first couple of seasons, Picard comes across as not liking children. Yes. So mm-hmm. our and he says he doesn't like children many, many times. Right. So our episode was about exploring that. And it got into an incident that happened, there were flashbacks to the stargazer and how he lost children. Oh. And how he feels they're so precious. And he does not agree with Federation Starfleet policy to have children on a starship. Thank you. Thank you. I also don't know. Let's go fight the Borg. Uh, Buckle the kids up, please. I know. I know. Borg and no seatbelts. Like, come on. Come on. So it was about that preciousness of a child um and then you know it was also and uh, this was before alexander had come along too mm-hmm. so in mm-hmm. our version the the people that become the crew that become kids are completely different it's and there's no row yet either oh interesting the first yeah. Track, yeah, right? yeah 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 so it was we mm-hmm. had it that it was troy that became a child wharf became a child Riker became a child and lieutenant ariana Ariana is my daughter's name. So, oh, um, so we, got a, we have a new character. Right. That so was it was those okay. four that became children. And as children, when they appeared on the transporter, at first it appears it's a transporter accident. But it turns out it's not a transporter accident because, oh, my God, what a crappy dose ex machina. I mean, I just that made me nuts when they <laughs> wrote the script and they made it be this magic wand <laughs> transporter accident thing. It was embarrassing. To be perfectly frank, we had it that there was a basically a predecessor to Odo in a way, a metamorph on the planet named Caliban that not only could he morph himself, but he could affect others. Oh, my God. That's so much cooler. These four were on the planet on an away mission, and it was a planet with a lot of snow and Riker, being from Alaska, was thinking very fondly of his time in the Oh, snow. okay. I, I'm a huge snow fan. I spent two weeks in Antarctica doing research for uh, a Stargate SG-1 novel. We can talk about that later, but I love Holy snow. Holy crap. Okay, I, I just want to like be your assistant and follow you around. <laughs> you anyway, know, I just want to so see the pictures on kids. Instagram. I'm sorry, what? I said, I just want to see the pictures on Instagram when you and Andrea <laughs> go to exotic places. Come back to Antarctica with me. I would l- listen as a marine biologist. I'm like, you say Antarctica and I say how high. Okay. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, yeah. It's pretty extraordinary down there. The krill are like, wow. They're, yeah. And oh, cool. also all the other, the sea mammals and stuff. It's really cool. Um, what was it? But oh, so Riker was kind of reminiscing about right, his so Alaska childhood. Reminiscing about wanting to be a child. Troy and Ariana were throwing snowballs at Worf. And then they get beamed aboard. And none of them have adult memories in our version. Oh. And their clothes don't shrink down to their size. They are like swimming in adult clothes. And I always wondered about that. 
yeah. it, with the transporter accident, I'm like, your your clothes are the right size, roughly, for you two. Like they made they made the sleeves a tad longer. Yeah, but that's about it. To yeah. try to like to try to show, oh look, their uniforms don't fit. But you're like, but they they mostly fit. Yeah, the shoulders <laughs> like the shoulders fit, and like the pants waist are fine, but your sleeves are a little. The seams long. are perfect. <laughs> like the neckline's great. The hem is pretty good. I mean, it's it's just a little bit longer of a sleeve. I'm, I think that's fine. We can tuck that in. At, having listened to your guys' coverage on the show, it actually helped me to make a little piece with what they did. It really oh. was, in a way, next generation's version of I'm Mud or Trouble with Tribbles. It had yes. that ad lib feel to it and that silliness and ridiculousness to it. That wasn't our intent. We were trying to do something more profound to be perfectly frank mm. but this is what it what it became we had ferengi too but they weren't so stupid what can i say they ferengi really, are so they stupid. stupid they're but so they made stupid yeah, they were, they were stupid as you said mm-hmm. and, and you're right and they did and we didn't do it that way in fact by halfway through our story half both riker and Worf are adults again because they have found the metamorph but then the metamorph gets captured by the Ferengi and they're threatening to kill him and Guinan knows him so that complicates things it was just its own more I just want a whole novel of this yeah I've actually a couple of times thought about proposing to pocketbooks that they let me write the novel I feel like it's and and you know what it wouldn't feel like Rascals at all. So it wouldn't feel like oh we're just doing like a rewrite of Rascals or whatever because which is ironic because Rascals was a rewrite of your original story. But that oh my god, that just it does seem so much more profound. Well, I think I think like, like, their adult memories too. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, there's a very there it, there are some funny lines, no surprise mostly from Worf. Yeah. You know, there's the line when they first get being back aboard and everybody's like in, in shock and all that. And then war, they're brought one by one as children into the ready room for an interview to try to figure out what the hell is going on. Because they don't even have their counselor anymore. She's a tiny little three, four-year-old, okay? Yeah. So they bring Worf in and they're like, you know, what happened down there? And Worf says, I do not like snowballs. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say it sounds like the Robin Hoodie, like I am not a merry man. <laughs> you right, know, exactly. I mean, yeah, I mean it's uh we had fun. I mean, Worf is always fun because he's first off, Michael Dorn is such a great actor. He can do the comedy, he can do the drama. Yeah. Cannot wait to see what they bring with him now. Um, but this would have been a child actor. And like I said, this was before Alexander, who I wish they had done more with Alexander. You know, yeah, the scenes, Alexander the is were not, there. Uh, yeah, Alexander is is definitely not a fan favorite. I like Alexander, but most people despise him. Understandably so. He's kind of an annoying kid. But in this episode, he wasn't. He was super helpful. He was actually it useful. made a lot yeah. of sense. He was. Yeah. It was made a lot of sense. It was like it was all about kids. Like it just it yeah. really made sense. And I think the story you're telling sounds really you know serious and profound and kind of you know reminiscing about childhood and being a kid again and what that's like. The direction they took it in was very campy and fun and playful. It's just a different story. It's a totally different story. And the thing that was similar was that crew members become kids. And And I think that's probably it. 
and the Ferengi, and Ferengi yeah. are involved in some kind of way. That's probably it as far as similarities. Everything else about these stories, yeah. the feel, the tone, what actually happens, the characters, like, is completely, completely, completely different. Yeah, and at the time, they hadn't done anything with the Stargazer. I think in the later seasons, they do go back into the Stargazer a little They had one in season one where the Ferengi, yep. this Ferengi wanted revenge against Picard, so he, like, did some yes. kind of brain manipulation with some giant orb and he kept turning it up higher and higher to make Picard hallucinate that he was on the Stargazer. Yeah. I forget why they did that. Because, I mean, just, because the Stargazer plot. fired on this Ferengi ship and that captain, that Ferengi, yeah, his son was on that Ferengi ship and was killed. Mm-hmm. So that's his like revenge. But yeah, you're right. It's, you know, I just even going back to the characters that you had written, I love the idea of Troy being a child. I love the idea of Riker being a child because Riker is, you know, he's so playful, right? Even as an adult that I could see him kind of embracing it more like the way Guinan embraced it in the show that aired. And I love Worf as a child because I could see him as like the, the Rolaren character. That's like, I don't want to be a kid. I'm not a kid. Like this is not, you know, or having a really difficult past, right? With his like father, Kittimer and all of that kind of backstory, right? Like I, uh, I would have loved to have seen Baby Wharf, you know, as you know, as a very resentful child who's like resisting what's happening. You know, I would have loved to see Wharf. Um, I, I completely agree with you, and I think he would be the Rolaren of the group. Mm-hmm. Who's like, I was never a child, and I don't want to be one now. Yeah. But I would have loved to see him not be that way. I would have loved to see him be a child and actually like get a second chance the way Ro did at the very end of the episode when she was coloring and she was like, Oh, I'm, I'm coloring a picture of my mom. You know, she got to kind of feel a little bit like a kid. I would have loved to see young Worf interact with Alexander and become friends in some mm. kind of a way where they find so some that common ground, some common ground. So when he became an adult again, he wasn't so like, Alexander, why, why are you this? Well, why are yes. you that? Seymour, Riker, warrior, you know? Riker would have been the guy in, in this case. I mean, yeah. the novels that they've gone on yeah. to do, Riker and Worf have a really good friendship. So that would have been a way to have explored that at a child level. Mm -hmm. And I think you could have had a lot of fun with that. I think there are two kind of types of people in the world. There's a type of person who as an adult can remember what it was like to be a kid and can kind of empathize with kids more, I think. And then there are those who sort of were like Rolaren. It's like, I was never a kid. Or if I was like, I don't like my adult life has all of that memory has sort of taken over, right? So, like, Riker would be the first person to remember what it's like to be a kid because he remembers what it's like to be a kid now as an adult, right? And I think you're right. Like, for Worf to kind of, like, rediscover what it feels like to be a kid where you're one, like, you have no autonomy. Like, you're completely powerless against whatever the adults want to do or want you to do, right? Like, you don't have any agency, really. And, like, for Worf to remember what that must feel like and then to relate that to Alexander would have been pretty awesome yeah because he was an orphan himself because the idea of not having autonomy i mean i'm from a different generation and i can tell you that i mean i had a mixed childhood i was bullied in school every day but when i got home to my apartment building i was friends with everybody in my apartment building and we played star trek and i played captain kirk oh my god that's so cool and we i was very my home childhood I felt a total sense of autonomy. I mm. 
you know, but this was a different age. You didn't have 24-7 news. You didn't have people who think the Constitution is a piece of paper you can crumble up and put in a birdcage. You know, you had, <laughs> yeah. you know, you, you, I lived in New York City in a bubble, bubble that literally had people in it from every continent. That's cool. Antarctica. I mean, we had people from... <laughs> Kenya and from uh, from Morocco and from China and from mm -hmm. Korea and Japan and from France and Denmark and you know what I'm saying they were for every it's a really I cool melting pot bubble right where all of the issues that are still going on 50 60 years later were not going on mm. I was safe walking home uh -huh. you know on Wednesdays I would skip the bus. And I would walk the three miles home and take a dollar to buy a candy bar and a comic book and play a video, play a pinball. Game. Oh, my God. How fun. <laughs> and I was completely safe. So, I you know, that was an age where children did feel more of a sense of autonomy. I will say I grew up um, both of my parents um, were immigrants. Um, my dad has already passed away, but he immigrated from Europe and my mom immigrated um, from South America. And uh, immigrant parents in general tend to be a little bit more guarded with their of their kids, right? Because it's like, I don't know this country very well. I don't know the social norms and whatever. So we were a lot more restricted in our movements. There was there was no like autonomy. I mean, I could go ride my bike on the street in front of the house, but like once the street lights came on, you have to come inside. But we couldn't go far. You couldn't go off the block. Like that was it. But the one thing that we could do was we had a family friend who had um a house on Catalina Island, which is mm. a little island not far off the coast of SoCal. It's like a our boat right away my honeymoon there oh it's super Aww. cute the island the island itself is a decent size but there's only like one town on it called avalon which i love the like background of like you know the knights of the round table kind of thing anyway but avalon is so small you can walk all the way around it in like 15 minutes flat and that was the one place my parents said go crazy like you don't have to check in with us go do whatever you want like literally where are you gonna go <laughs> we're on an island <laughs> in a town that's the size of a thimble okay like so my sister and i would be like we're gonna go to the beach we're gonna go to like this little cafe and get you know they'd give us a couple bucks and we'd go get like a blues frozen banana or like a something right where it's like that was the space to feel totally free and every time we got to go there, I felt so happy because it kind of it gives me that enterprise feel where it's like, where are you possibly going to go and get lost? You can't get lost. Yeah. I mean, you know enterprise I mean? Like, was like a floating yeah. hotel in a way. Yeah. Yes, the, it totally but if was. But you'll notice as it went out of the series into the movies, the designs. Yes. Uh, the next enterprise was more militaristic. The bridge yeah, much was more. more militaristic. And I think they moved away from even showing us in the movies children being hurried down the corridor. Yes, yeah. Get out of ways, you know, harm's way during a red alert. Um, I think. Where are they putting these kids exactly? That's what I want to know. The school There's room. No seat belts. Yeah, it's like, oh no, the Frank are attacking. Um, go to go to class. Go to your quarters. This is just this is just not safe. <laughs> what? And mm -hmm. that's why you don't bring kids on your ship. That's what, that's what my, that's again, what my cousin was saying. He was just like, well, the reason is because I, and I didn't know this because he's a military person. I'm not, but he said in the Navy, you actually can have your family on board um, at certain periods of time. Yeah. Like not when they're going to war, right. but when the ship is like docked and it's doing maintenance for three months or whatever, like your family can be on board. Huh. Um, and I was like, really? And he was like, yes, because 
you could be deployed for, for months, you could be deployed for years and you want to be able to see your family. So if these people are going on deep space missions for seven years, like the enterprise was, that means they're not going to see their families for seven years. That's unreasonable. So that's why families are allowed. What are we fighting for? What what is all the effort for? And, you know, our children are precious. Should the children, I mean, could they have come up with a better plan for how to protect the children? Yes. I have no idea. But, you know, there was one thing they did in next generation that was very clever, and that was the saucer separation. Yeah, that's true. I love that. I love the saucer separation. You only see it a couple of times. And every season as a kid, I was like, is it going to happen again? Like, I just wanted to see that with the like, you know, as it separates, like, oh, it's so great. It was clever because then you could take the children and the civilians and people who weren't qualified, you know, like biologists. Yeah. Take them and get them off to safety while the saucer went off to battle. So, that I guess is the compromise because what are we fighting for if it if it's not for our families? Yes, uh, you're right. Yeah, you know, for for the arts. I mean, you've seen our, all of these arguments before, so you know I think, but still, children are precious, and that's what we wanted yeah. to get into. And they bring they can when they're behaving themselves. <clears throat> they can bring out the best in us. Yeah. Yeah, or the worst in us. Or <laughs> when the worst. Yeah, yes. it's it's a fun little flip I mean, of a coin. That was so- the other thing with the Ferengi that really got me with the with rascals versus our draft is that they really they made them so stupid, and I loved how in Deep Space Nine, thank you Armin mm-hmm. Shimmerman and Aaron Eisenberg, rest in peace, and all of those folks, how they really they they elevated the Ferengi culture. Now I know there's been issues of uh concerns of anti-semitism and i think they're they're they are a little valid i think there's more they they could have done to give it more dynamic range i think uh cork's brother who ends up being the new nagus was their way of doing that but my god and rascals they're like cartoon characters they're so dumb (laughs) they're really dumb and then they keep like threatening to like murder all the kids and you're like gosh that's like yeah. And it's just like such a brutal thought even, you know, and they're just like, well, if you didn't want us to murder your kids, you shouldn't have brought them on the ship. And you're like, I guess, but like, why are you going around murdering kids regardless of where they are? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How no, does that abs- lead to profit? Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's yeah. It was really weird. So, okay. On that note, um, just like is, so you said you were able to make peace with how they decided to create this episode. Now, given the chance in a perfect world with a magic wand, would you go back and change this episode to be what you originally created? Or would you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) I think there's so much story that over the seven years never got explored as to Picard's issues with children. I mean, yes, they had that episode later on where he's with those kids in the, uh, you know, the turbo lift. In the turbo lift, yeah. It's a start, definitely. But I think um, I think exploring Riker had a tragic childhood too, you know. Yes, with the death of his mother, yeah. Right, death of his mother. Worf had a really tragic childhood, you know. And then Troy had this cuckoo pants mother. <laughs> so what would Troy? What would little Troy be like? Not under the thumb of Luaxana Troy. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that was interesting too to be explored. So I absolutely would like to see 
the original version done. But, you know, I think I, I, I got to thank you for the coverage you did on Rascals because you really helped me to get some distance on it and see, yeah, you know, it's their I Mud episode. Yeah, you know, I I love hearing this backstory from you and I'm so I'm so thankful that you agreed to sit down with us and talk about this with us because you know, whenever we review an episode, part of the homework that I do is I go back and I look at like production history notes on each episode and there are always, you know, I don't I don't think I've ever seen a single episode that I've done, you know, a review on that didn't have like rewrites and things like that, that happen. But I'm just kind of curious, you know, how did the rewriting process even look like? Was this sort of all in one fell swoop or did they just kind of slowly strip things away from your original story to get to the, the rascals that aired? Or was it just like, Hey, we're doing a whole rewrite and we're losing all of these components. Well, what happened was, as I said, is that the script was bought in 1981. It was one of mm-hmm. the last scripts that Gene Roddenberry bought, spec scripts that he bought before he passed away. And those early years in Next Generation were the last time in Hollywood history that spec scripts were invited, that people were invited to submit pre-written scripts without having pitched them first. That's amazing. So, yeah. So my father and I wrote it. And we submitted it, and then it was bought, and then it was shelved, and then three years went by. We didn't hear a thing. Roddenberry died. You know, there was a change in management, as it were, in the writing yeah. room. Yeah. And the next thing we know, it's going to – it's it's happening. We had nothing to do with the rewrite. I will tell you that there are so many versions of who actually was the one who rewrote it. It wasn't Michael Piller. I know who okay. it was because I, I brought him to the Science Fiction Fantasy Writers of America Nebula Awards as our speaker one year, and that's Ron D. Moore. I brought oh, wow. Ron in, and Ron was the one who rewrote that thing. Okay. And Ron had gone on in interviews to complain about the original story having a transporter accident. So I gave him so much crap <laughs> about Ron, that. I was like, what the hell? That's not true. You know, that's not how we did it. Why are you putting the blame on us? That's crap. <laughs> so I'm trying to keep you from getting an explicit rating here. So, oh, no, it's fine. Oh, our show is explicit. Yeah, oh, I yeah. swear all the time. Yeah. Good. Well, that was total bullshit. That was absolute <laughs> bullshit because that's not what happened. It's very clear in the script that's not what happened. But, you know, I I suspect what happened was is that the writers didn't want to do it. They didn't want to they, – that they forced it into that home alone thing. They didn't want to deal with children. Mm. I mean, they tell you in the industry the two things you never want to work with is animals and children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I would argue that – that's no longer true. I mean, I think we've all seen multiple shows with extraordinary children actors like, mm-hmm. oh, my God. Hello, Bella Ramsey, Last of Us, just the latest in a long Good time. Lord, I oh know, right? God, these children are just blowing my mind. And, you know, having a dog of my own, <laughs> I can tell you dog training has come a long, long way. So, you know, even animals, it's a different world now than it was 30 plus years ago. But I think they were forced into it, and I think they just decided to fully embrace the Home Alone trope and just Mm -hmm. go with it and be ridiculous, make it their own eye mud, as it were, or their own, you know, trouble with triples, 
and just be ridiculous. And that's that's the direction they went with it. And I mean, we then we were invited to come back and pitch more with Jerry Ryan, who went on to do Voyager. Yes. Yeah. I was invited. I got a phone call after that. And I was invited to come on as a WGA, a Writers Guild of America intern. Okay. And I had to turn it down because it paid like $200 a week. I was a single mother and I was working. I was in pre-production as a visual effects supervisor for Terminator 2. Whoa. A little bit more money. So, and I owned a house. So, you know, you do the math. And I hated turning it down. And God, Jerry Ryan was just an incredible human being. She just, just a class act, really. I hated turning it down. That's definitely one of the very few regrets in my life. But, um, you know, I mean, but this is what happens. I have worked on other series as a producer. I, I was a, uh, I was a producer on a CBS series called Hearts of the West with Bo and Lloyd Bridges. Oh, and God. I repeatedly saw specs, you know, scripts come in from outside writers. Mm-hmm. And then by the time the in-staff writers got done with it, it was like I tell my screenwriting students, because I teach screenwriting uh, at the college level, and I tell them that frequently what you'll see is this beautiful, profound indie story of two nuns in Idaho will end Mm -hmm. up being about two cops in New York City. Yeah. (laughs) And that's what happened to Rascals. And that's what's happened to many other, you know, it's just, it's part of the business. It's just the way the business works. Yeah. Now, I find that people who are Trekkers or Trekkies, that there's this, uh, this just certain honorable ethic going on because it was so formative in raising them and it's also it's a shared language i mean i I almost wish it was required watching in all the i know with ethics you know it it really you know there's uh, sharice and i have spoken you know we have a lot of friends who are all trekkers or trekkies or however people want to identify and one of them, uh, one of our friends, she says she watches, she falls asleep to um, Voyager every night or like DS9 every night because it helps her kind of like dream of like the better world that we could be. And I think that that is such a powerful message. And, you know, I feel like very early seasons of TNG, Sharice can attest to this. Like there's always like a moral of the story. And Sharice is like, I hate the moral of the story. Like stop trying to write I just buys the moral of the story because it's like it's it's telling me as a viewer that you're too stupid to understand what I was trying to tell you so let me tell you in words you should be nice to people yeah. it's like get out of here man I got but, that uh, yeah. I got well, that from I, I got this. it I, I totally caught that thanks yeah. caught it I mean, you know they have to <laughs> appeal like to a wide kind of- audience both people who are aware enough like yourself but also those who not so much but you know, I mean, we need story to survive and thrive as a civilization. Right. This is, and I think the stories are really strong. And so, yeah, not so much in season one, but in the other seasons, I think the stories are really strong, and they 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 stand alone. And I love the fact that it's kind of I love it when it's more open to interpretation mm-hmm. because there are a lot of morals that you can pull mm-hmm. from each episode. For example, there's an episode in season one called Symbiosis where you think this planet is dying from some terrible disease. This other planet has the, the medicine. treatment for the, the medicine for the disease. Such a good episode. Out that the that the sufferers are actually addicted to drugs and that the healers are actually drug dealers and that they think they're going to die if they don't have the drugs, but really it's just withdrawal. And so there's so many moral mm-hmm. 
and ethical issues with this symbiosis, with this mutual relationship these two plants have formed. And I like that at the end of the episode, it's it ends. And you can kind of think about it from a lot of different angles of like, hmm, was that right? Was that wrong? What should they have done? As opposed to them just being like, well, kids, that's why you shouldn't do drugs. It just feels like you're really closing the door. Yeah, to they all do all that you can extract. But that was from the style of the stories. era. It was called, you know, as a screenwriting professor, I'm repeating myself here, but it was called Gilding the Lily. Ah. That last scene where everybody's, you know, usually on, yeah. on the bridge. And, and they did this in the original series too, where at the end, it would, they're all patting each other on the back and they, <laughs> yeah. they re spell out in overly simplistic words what the moral of the story is and we've moved away from that because audiences have gotten more sophisticated i mean you watch game of thrones you know except for that last season <laughs> the you one get, yeah. we we shall not speak if the name yeah exactly <laughs> I mean, and even but even star trek itself evolved i mean by the time yeah deep space nine's final scenes they still sort of did the same thing but they would do it in sneakier means you also had you know you had the great iris Stephen bear running Deep Space Nine by the time it got into the third season. And, you know, he was not going to stand for that. Everybody standing around and patting each other on the back banana mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. Know, it's just not going to happen. But it does. It does change the tone of a, of a show. It makes it feel a little more sitcom-y. Yes. There's nothing wrong with sitcom. Um, but I know DS9 had a more serious tone. Yeah. But even at the end, even after maybe like season middle, Season two, early middle season two, they stopped doing yeah. that, which I really appreciate. And they started ending with maybe it's two characters in, you know, the observation lounge looking out the window or mm -hmm. something like that, where it's like a reflective moment. Yes. So there still is an it, like a, a period at the end of the sentence, but it's more realistic because I know when I come home at the end of the day and I'm reviewing what what happened with my day, I don't go. And that's why we all need to be friends. <laughs> I, I don't do that. But I do maybe you stare don't? out the window. <laughs> Right. I don't. I don't. Probably because I don't have kids. <laughs> That's literally the only reason. I don't end every single day with a moral. <laughs> yeah, I end every single day thinking I only got like half done of what I wanted to get done today. <laughs> every day of my life now is like that. You know, it's like this is I need to go at warp speed, man. It's not. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, the 90s were a very interesting transition for storytelling and television. And I think we owe a lot more to Next Generation and then Deep Space Nine yeah. as far as all TV is concerned because of what they did. I mean, even Next Gen in the later seasons got more, a little more serial, serialized. Deep Space Nine certainly got yeah. serialized. Mm -hmm. And now yeah. that's like the, you know. Now that's the that's thing. Now it's not, now it's not just standalone little capsules that have nothing to do with each other. Exactly. It's like, now we have more long form storytelling. Now we have character growth and development. It doesn't just restart from zero every episode. Well, is that just speaks volumes to the power of great science fiction and specifically Star Trek, because here, you know, if we think about just what Star Trek TOS originally was, it was three seasons People are flying around in the spaceship and interacting with aliens and pew, pew, pewing, you know, and that could have just ended just there, right? But yeah. instead, it inspired legions and legions of people to write further stories, furthering the stories of these characters, right? And like into, into 
TNG and DS9, where it's like, you know, there aren't a whole lot of series that will inspire such an uprising of like more creative content. And that I think really speaks to what Gene Roddenberry like tapped into with people. Like he tapped into mm-hmm. something so deep with people that it created an entire culture that still, what is it? 50 years later is still like, just, it's still just taking off. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, which is, which is amazing. Oh yeah. my God. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. It is amazing. And it's, um, what I think is particularly cool talking about children and rascal rascals is seeing this, these second generations, uh, Rod Roddenberry. Yes. Uh, yeah. Leonard Nimoy's son's directorial debut was on The Rascals. And, you know, you're seeing some of these other children of first generations that got into it. You you can't shake the the dream and the vision, the hope. This, ladies and gentlemen, is a lady who knows her track. Holy moly. I mean, see, this right here, too, just even this conversation serves to separate like Sharice and I as fans of the show, right? As super fans. And you who were like, you were in the trenches. You know what I mean? Like you were there, you know, these people, this is just, you know, it feels like, it feels like I'm looking through a kaleidoscope and I'm discovering a whole new universe where like, you're talking about DC Fontana and all. I mean, it's like, (laughs) you you took Ron D. Moore as like your plus one to this nebula where it's like, what the hell? Like, this is just, this is like science fiction inception right here. (laughs) It's crazy. It's, it's crazy. And such a pleasure too, to get to chat with you about this. This has been a treat. It is wonderful to meet the two of you. I love what you're doing with this podcast. Oh my God. From your lips to God's ears, I tell you that that just means so much. We we really are just a couple of super fans of TNG who just enjoy having like fun conversations about it. So it if it translates well, like it just that makes all the difference. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh. Fun and thoughtful, which I really appreciate. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Also, I want to thank you for writing Rascals, even though it wasn't the Rascals that translated, you know, and ended up on screen. Um, I have nieces and nephews, and I'm sure lots and lots of people who are Trek fans have kids in their lives. And Rascals and um, True Q, like some of the episodes that feature kids are the first ones that I show, like, to kids, because they put themselves like it puts them in that sort of sci-fi headspace, right? And like it 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 pulls them right in. So writing kids in sci-fi like engenders a whole new generation of sci-fi fans. So thank you for doing that. You're very welcome. And I forgot about True Q. That that's note, a cute episode. Oh, that's a great it's one. Super cute. It's super cute. And on on that note, um, before we go, I want to let people know where they can find you. And there's a couple different places. So. First, you can go to dianabotsford.com, and Botsford is spelled B-O-T-S-F-O-R-D to find out whatever Diana's working on now, because she's always got something new in the works, some new, like, yeast brewing, wherever (laughs) it brews. Um, You can also find her... I'm like, does yeast even brew? I don't know. I'm not. I'm, I'm not like, Sharice, why are you so, handling this analogy? I don't know. The analogy just came out. And you know, like when I do a sports analogy and I'm like, but what, what just happened? Was that I don't a know touchdown? what happened. Girl, we're it, great. It great. The, four, the four point touchdown. Wait, is that how that goes? That can't be right. <laughs> also, we're talking about can, volleyball. So I don't know. Okay. <laughs> no, right. I know. Right. <laughs> For like match set point. That's not the right sport either. So you can find her on Instagram with at digital red 93 red is a color 
Um, and she's got two things coming up. We'll put the links in the description. Mm-hmm. But I want to give Diana a chance to talk about the two. And one of them is a short story anthology um, and a book called Double Trouble. And the second are a series of screenwriting workshops. So, Diana, do you want to talk a little bit about Double Trouble? Yes, absolutely. Because Double Trouble is from the International Association of Media Tie-In Writers, of which I am one. I wrote uh, several Stargate SG-1 novels. And there are several Star Trek novel writers that are contributing short stories, including... David Mack, Greg Cox, Keith D. Candido. These are names that I will bet many of your listeners know. Mm-hmm. And I'll be, I'm also contributing a story that's called Double Trouble. That'll be out in July. Uh, we're hoping to do a, a, at least some sort of launch at the Star Trek uh, Shore Leave Convention in Baltimore in July. So maybe we'll see you there. Uh, the other thing is I will be doing uh, for the month of April will be the first in what I hope is a series of screenwriting workshops online with the Pen Writers Association. And that is, we'll meet once a week for a couple hours and there'll be mini lectures. That'll be part of that two hours, but there'll also be the opportunity to access additional lectures I've created. But the idea is for everybody to work together on developing their scripts. And the last few weeks of the month, we'll be actually workshopping your pages. You'll get to bring your pages you've written to the workshop online in Zoom, and they'll be read around uh, out loud by the group, and you'll get live feedback. It is Amazing. always easier to write when somebody else is on the journey with you. So you can find out about that too at dianabotsford.com. Yeah, I, I love this. And you know, one of this one of my favorite writers, two of my favorite writers, uh, one is C.S. Lewis, mm. and he wrote a, a ton of amazing like Christian fiction, including the Chronicle of Narnia series, mm-hmm. which is like seven books long. Um, and another one of my favorite art uh, authors is J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings. And the two of them were in a book writing club together. Oh my god. So like they were buddies <laughs> cheering each other on as they were writing. So like what Diana's talking about, having those buddies to write with can make all the difference, like can make all the difference. So um, definitely check that out. We'll have the links below. Um, And if you are listening to this at a time when those have already passed, that's okay. You can go to Diana's website and see whatever her newest project is coming up. So Diana, thank you so much for being a part of this show, a part of this episode, and for letting us know about your experiences in the industry. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. You guys are great. Oh, thank to your you. next podcast. Thank you so much. We are over here just fangirling really hard over you. So <laughs> this has been super, super fun. Um, oh my gosh. I am immediately going to jump online and start ordering <laughs> some Star Trek novels because I need the story to continue, you know, especially with these characters we love so much. So major, major props to you and to all of the writers who contributed to TNG and all of the different series um, for making these characters so freaking lovable. It's amazing. Yeah, they're special yeah. characters. And knock on wood, we're going to see that live on screen again. <laughs> Can't wait. Yeah. So join us next week when we are reviewing something else. We don't know. <laughs> Because we're recording this at a different time from when we're going to publish it. So something else will be coming out on Thursday <laughs> if you're listening to this in real time. It could be and really whatever good it is, or it could be really bad. Who knows? <laughs> totally good. It totally good. It's not. At least it won't be Aquiel. Okay, because we're done with that. <laughs> we're done with that dumpster fire of an episode. But I think, uh, yeah, I think it'll most likely be good. Um, so, you know, check us out on Thursday. All right, guys. Thank you so much for nerding out with us. We will catch you next week. Thanks for geeking out with us. Be sure to join the crew at 
the pngpodcast.com to be the first to know when we do our live shows or host events exclusively for our members. We'll see you next time.